Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community, from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, it was Spinster's Choice and Kelly chose the theme of children's horror and the film up for discussion is the 1985 Disney film Return to Oz. This is a childhood favorite of Kelly's and has left her some nightmarish memories, and this was a first-time watch for me, despite my love for The Wizard of Oz. So we're here to discuss Frank L. Baum, The World of Oz, the film Return to Oz as gateway horror, and the age-old question, when is it a good time to introduce children to the horror genre? So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. (laughs) Come here, chicken! So why, Kelly, did you chose this film? Ah, well, I chose this film because I really wanted to revisit it in a spinster's fashion, but particularly, and this is actually something we'll delve a bit more in depth into later on, is there's this really great YouTube channel called In Praise of Shadows, and the gentleman on there has really great shorter and longer videos about analysis of pop culture stuff, a lot of horror stuff. They have like some stuff called Anatomy of a Franchise, and we'll dive deep into franchise franchises like Child's Play and Phantasm, and he had this really great video called Return to Oz is an Absolute Nightmare. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is a movie that I grew up with. So watched the video, loved it. Like I said, we'll talk about it later, but it was really well done. I highly recommend folks checking it out, but it was pretty much the inspiration for doing this Spinster's Choice movie. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. You'll share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. This is the Oz you haven't seen before, and this is the Oz you'll want to visit again and again. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. Why don't we just fly back to Kansas? Return to Oz. So 
So, well, let's get into this then. So what is your story around Return to Oz? Well, like I said, I grew up with this movie. I loved it as a kid. And a few years ago, I actually bought it for the very first time. I never owned it. I think when I was growing up, I had taped it onto a VHS from TV. And I watched that over and over and over again. So what's interesting is that... I personally have never read any of the Wizard of Oz books. I had seen the Wizard of Oz from 1939, you know, maybe once or twice, but it didn't resonate with me like Return to Oz did. It's, I'll get into my likes after, but (laughs) it just really resonated with me. And then of course, as a teenager, you know, Feruza Balk stars in the Return to Oz. And as a teenager, I loved the craft. So that was just extra ammunition, I guess you could say, (laughs) for me to adore Return to Oz. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. And it's so interesting because it was you who told me about Return to Oz. And I'm the Oz fan. I'm the one who grew up on the 1939 original film Wizard of Oz, was obsessed with it, read the Frank Baum's book, which will be funny because I will go into why I never saw Mm -hmm. Return to Oz because I realized the difference was between (laughs) the books and the movie. And my little childhood brain was not happy. But yeah, I had never even heard of Return to Oz until Kelly told me like a couple years ago. We were t- I don't know what mm. we randomly started talking about children's horror. And she's like, oh, you haven't seen Return to Oz? I'm like, no. She's like, oh, nightmare for you all. And uh, Absolutely. I will. So this was the first time watch for me. And I will definitely say that film is nightmare fuel. Yes. So since it was your first time watching and we folks, we have not talked about this. So I'm really excited because <laughs> I love when it's a, for somebody's first time watch. Right. That's really exciting. So let me know. What did you like about Return to Oz? or did you like it? So this was like really hard because I was trying to keep very quiet about my reactions to this film and because like yeah. I knew right away once I finished it I loved it and I wanted to be like oh my god Kelly and make so many comments about all the different scenes that I was like nope 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 like it was like checking <laughs> the whole movie the entire like, movie is a big old nope <laughs> I was checking off all the nopes on my list and I'm just like oh my god I love this movie but I was like no last time I said anything I almost spoiled it before we did the podcast so I'm like I have to keep quiet so yes now yeah. I'm here to talk about my likes and dislikes of this film. So I loved it. I I love the storytelling. (laughs) I love that it has these dark undertones interrelated with this dark fantasy, which is so interesting because, like I said, I grew up on the original one. And then I loved the original one, got scared when I read the original books, and so never saw this film. But then I'm watching it. I'm like, this is such a Jessica film. I love everything about this. Everything is interesting, but scary. And it's also, once again, a closer adaptation to Baum's work. So I was like, that's, again, the the purist, in quotation marks, I am saying, about me really. enjoys that when we have faithful yeah, adaptations yeah. from book. So I not knowing yeah. that so it made it so much interesting but so interesting. So yeah, there's just so much I loved about it. There's characters that were creepy like TikTok but also adorable. Yep. Like totally yep. like he's adorable <laughs> but you're creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Every character is adorable yet creepy. And just, yeah, and just Dorothy as a character felt very believable to me. Like she, as a as a young girl, like in living in Kansas at the time and living on a rural farm and you have to be on your own to take care of yourself type thing. So yeah, I love this film. I think when Kelly asked me for my rating, the only hint she got was I said five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Well, I'm really happy that you loved this movie. And you're right. It's definitely up your alley. The blend of like fantasy and 
horror and like we'll get into it later, but like some interesting like commentary and there's just a lot of wonderful aspects to this movie. It's grim. It's dark. So my likes a continue a great continuation of a classic story. There's it's fantasy. It's horror. It's a heartwarming tale. You know, it's it. There is some feel good elements to it. I love the like puppets, the animatronics and the effects in this movie. A lot of them, I think, hold up really well. Yeah, they do. We have a like horror alumni in this Piper Laurie playing Auntie M. She was Margaret White, my least favorite mother of all time, (laughs) and Carrie. But also our nurse or Princess Mombi is Jean Marsh, who played Queen Bavmorda from (gasps) Willow. No wonder she's extra terrifying. (laughs) Yes. And holy moly, that is also a kind of like darker fantasy movie that I grew up with and I love is Willow. Also, her nurse's outfit is bloody fabulous. Those pointed shoulders, like it's some grim, dark, not absolutely necessary to be wearing, but aesthetically very pleasing. The whole movie. Adding in the whole element of the evil woman, right? The pointy stuff. We have that, the pointiest things going on all the time. Yep. In black, (laughs) pointy. Absolutely. She may not have a pointed nose, but boy, she's got some pointed shoulders. Yep. She's sharp. She's cold. Stay away. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, do you dislike anything about it? No, I honestly do not dislike this film. I said the only thing I dislike is the fact that I waited so long to see it. Because I think if I had seen this film as a child, I probably would have had the same warm feelings I have that you have towards it as I did. Because it's interesting is like I watched other dark fantasy films as a child. I saw Willow. I saw, um, you know, The Last Unicorn. That has scary elements. Like there's a lot of films that we watched as children. They're like had scary elements to it. And Return to Oz was just perfect. But for some reason, I was like, nope, Oz in my mind is always bright and colorful and cheery and musical. (laughs) Not this nightmare world. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I personally feel like it fits right in there with all of the other like 80s dark fantasy that I grew up with. Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Legend. I didn't watch The Last Unicorn until later. You showed that one to me. But I think it just fits in really nicely with a lot of those films for for us growing up. And hey, it's never too late to enjoy an old movie, right? That is true. But yourself, do you have any dislikes? Um, I found Feruza Balk's acting just like a little bit underwhelming. If I had to nitpick, she's fine. She's very sweet, but you know, I feel like she does better as an adult actress. Oh yeah, well that was her, her first role, right? Like so, yes. she's a child yeah. in her first yeah. role. It's so fair. yeah, so I'm harsh on child actors. I'm like hey, be good or be nothing. Make me feel emotion emotional and cry. Like make the- me emote. <laughs> But other than that, like, I just absolutely adore this movie. And I'm so glad to be talking about it and just revisiting this month with you. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. So let's jump into this. Are you ready? Not yet. First, what we'll have to note is we reached out to social media And we asked people to record short three-minute blurbs about movies that scared them as children. So they're not going to be your regular horror movies. They're going to be, well, it's going to be a surprise for you folks. But throughout this episode, you'll hear other people's nightmare fuel from them growing up. But now, yes, let's get into L. Frank Baum. Frank Baum was born May 15th, 1856, and he belonged to a Methodist household with a mix of English, German, Scottish, Irish, and 
ancestry. And from a very young age, he was always a natural entertainer and a daydreamer. One of the reasons why is because at the age of 12, he had to get sent home from military academy school because he had a weak heart. So he spent a lot of time at home and having his own imagination and writing about chickens later on in, in his life. Yeah, Baum didn't, he didn't mind work, but what I thought was really interesting that, yeah, you said he's a daydreamer, he was a natural entertainer, so he had a very, like, diverse set of experiences, um, which later informed the marvelous world of Oz. But we get into, when he was 40 years old, he finally threw himself into writing. You know, as a natural entertainer, he was a playwright, he was an actor, he did a bunch of those types of things, worked in a variety of different places, like you said, raised chickens. (laughs) And after failing, I'll say in quotation, just not doing well with the theater and journalism and all these variety of different things that he tried out in his lifestyle, decided to write, to focus on a literary career. And he started with children's stories. And this I didn't know, but with his apparent art of storytelling, he published uh, a prose version of Nursery Rhymes in 1887, Mother Goose in Prose, and and its sequel, Father Goose. These books became instantly successful. Yeah, he was geared towards writing because of his wife. He described himself as a feminist and he had a feminist wife and in-laws. His wife was Maud Gage and she was the daughter of noted feminist and suffragist Matilda Joss Gage. So most of his books, as you would tell from his stories, would have a female protagonist as his heroes and he would always be telling his own children stories and stuff like that before bed. So his wife's like, you're a really good storyteller. You should start writing these books. And like Kelly said, he started writing Mm -hmm. the nursery rhymes, the goofs, the gooses, and then eventually, he would eventually start writing The World of Oz just to start gaining some money around in the income because he was um, one of the sole providers of his household. Absolutely. As was the time, right? Women raised the kids. The men wrote the child's books. So <laughs> <laughs> there's this interesting fact that uh, in our research, I came across that. So in the spring of 1898, he started writing the story of The Wizard of Oz. And when he was done with the manuscript, he apparently framed the well-worn pencil stub he used to write the story, thinking, hoping, anticipating that it would actually become something great. So The Wizard of Oz, the first book in the series, was published in 1900 with illustrations by incredibly wonderful artist William Wallace Denslow. So combining the weird and wacky world of Oz with that, with Denslow's incredible illustrations, creating a best-selling children's book. Yeah, The Wizard of Oz became a cultural phenomenon. This book has never been out of print. It has images and phrases that often trigger many personal memories and musings for people um, because it was such, it was so important to the time of when it came out and children were writing um, letters to Frank Baum asking for more stories. They wanted to see more of what happened with Oz and funny little antidote, I recently rewatched The Wizard of Oz and just instantly remembered starting all these feelings and remembering all these lines from it and yeah. my partner just happened to be in the same room as me as I was watching it oh, yeah. and he's like oh my goodness, I remember that line. I remember that line and so it was like really um having that moment I'm like yes the Wizard of Oz this uh children's series that Oz created that um, film created really did have an impact culturally around the world especially because he essentially founded the American fairy tale which was unheard of back then because a lot 
lot of fairy tales being read to children were very European based. Absolutely. You founded a genre, essentially. Yes, American children at the time. And again, I didn't know this. Also not American, but they mainly predominantly read books from Europe. Yes. There had never been a successful American children's book author. Hello. And yes, like you said, it became a cultural phenomenon and it is one of its one of a kind. Right. And what was interesting about, I think, the the books and I, I read a little bit of it and, you know, researching about the books that they were informal. And, yeah. and we, during our research for this, it was really interesting because, you know, just looking back at it, characters were defined by their actions. Morality was more of a subtext than like the big predominant like feeling through a lot of the regular fairy tales, I guess, from like Europe. Yeah. Um, so it's just a little bit more fun and whimsical to read. It was joyful. It was a magical place. And if you wanted to read deeper into it, you could find a lot of themes and interesting things going on. It was also very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which makes sense because, yeah, a lot of uh, European literature was very heavy on formality and being very moral and being just. And it just felt very like this is the structure and you follow this and you're stuck in your ways. Whereas with the American utopia being created in the world of Oz in this American fairy tale, this kind of goes with that whole manifest destiny idea for Americans, mm-hmm. right? That whole idea of building our own way and we are defined by, you know, our, we are defined by our actions and do. not by our morals. Yeah. And because we are yeah. building a new nation. In society, so I understand why a book like *The Wizard of Oz* would really speak to the children, but not only the children, the parents who are reading these books to their children, be like, "Yes, we're doing this. Like, you know, we are not <laughs> separating ourselves from Ameri- from European ideas and concepts of, you know, what it is to live in the world." Yeah. So I was just saying. So with these books being so popular, there are actually 40 official Oz books. Um, 14 of them were written by Frank Baum himself, and in response to children's letters who wanted just to see more characters in his books, um, and then when he died um, after suffering a stroke in 1919, the series was carried on by Ruth Palmley Thompson, who wrote 19 more books, and then seven more books were written by different authors. Hi, I'm Carolyn Girk. I'm an artist and illustrator. My shop is called Velvet Hand Designs. You can find me on Etsy and all the various social media. I'm also a horror enthusiast. You can find my horror musings at The Dark and Stormy Night, wordpress.com so one of the formative horror staples of my childhood has to be the Muppet Christmas Carol it's a yearly necessity and let's face it an out of season favorite too the Muppet Christmas Carol is in turns funny sad heartwarming and utterly chilling we're presented with a very intense Michael Caine as Scrooge who refuses to lighten his tone for the Muppets backlit and towering he booms into the story with a pounding score Scrooge is monstrous, introducing tiny, wide-eyed children to capitalism, prisons, workhouses, and absolute disregard for even the sweet bunny orphan who our imaginations may taunt us is surely going to freeze to death. Scrooge faces a wailing door knocker in a dark, lonely home that feels haunted even before the ghosts arrive. When they do, they rattle their chains to a very dark but catchy tune, reminding us not to get comfortable. The real horror, in my opinion, drifts in on the ethereal tentacles of that haunting doll-faced specter, the ghost of Christmas past. She seems the least human of the three spirits, almost like a memory itself, shifting, difficult to see clearly. A strange thing not to be trusted. Her childish voice unsettles as she notes her eons of life. She's both a child and not a child. The ghost of Christmas present, jolly though he may be, still seems to have an edge. How a foam-based puppet giant can have knowing eyes is beyond me. 
is a mastery of some sort. But as the bright spot in the film fades away, we know he knows what's in store for Scrooge. Then, in on the fog, rules the looming apparition of Scrooge's future. Our congenial hosts, Rizzo the Rat and Gonzo, abandon us, acknowledging that what follows is not meant to comfort. The ghost of Christmas yet to come is cloaked in a paper robe that invokes the thin crepe texture of a wasp's nest. Its empty cavern in lieu of a face is disconcerting, yes, but it was always its silence and its cold, spindly hands that chilled me. Muppets cackle and chatter merrily about Scrooge's death. We know it's Scrooge. We know. We begin to understand that these creatures have literally stolen Scrooge's bedding out from under his cooling corpse, showing him as little empathy as he showed them. A Christmas Carol in its original form, and indeed in all its iterations, is a horror story. But as children were lulled by our friends Kermit and Miss Piggy, then we stumble into a holiday musical, and suddenly the seeds of horror are planted. I still watch it every year with my kids. It's one of my absolute favorite Christmas movies. Hi, Jess and Kelly. This is Jen Adams. I am the co-host of the Psychoanalysis Podcast and the Losers Club Podcast, and I write for the Roomwork Blog and Dread Central and Ghouls Magazine and a couple of other places. And when I was little, I was terrified of The Princess Bride. It was it was the movie that scared me more than anything else, which is ironic now because Carrie Elways is one of my dream crushes. He can do no wrong. I will love him forever. He elevates even the worst of movies or the worst of seasons. And I just I love him. But when I was little, I was terrified of this movie and the rodents of unusual size and the swamp. I remember being scared of that kind of but what really really scared me was the machine I was terrified of this machine that just causes pain and this was a big slumber party movie at the time and I remember my family watching it I have this vivid memory of hiding behind the couch in our living room when it was on because I was so afraid of this machine and um, when it would play at slumber parties I would always have to leave the room and I would have to do something else because I was too afraid to watch it and one time we went to as a part of the slumber party we went to a blockbuster and we rented movies and they wanted to rent this and I was so scared that I made them rent bed knobs and broomsticks also because that was one of my favorite movies at the time and if you haven't seen that side note it is fantastic it's about this amazing witch and thinking back no wonder I grew up wanting to be a witch after watching that movie over and over and over again when I was a kid but so we I made them rent that movie also because I was too afraid for Princess Bride to be the only movie that we had rented we didn't end up watching bed knobs and broomsticks we only watched Princess Bride I did leave the room but something about just knowing that we had that movie as an option kind Kind of made me feel a little safer. Pretty sure the mom was annoyed with me for making her spend money on a movie we didn't watch. But um, yeah, so that movie, and I'm not exactly sure why it was so scary to me. I think if I really dug into the recesses of my mind, there is an element of a man being kind of dominated that I think made me feel really uncomfortable as a child. There's also like an S&M element to it. Which I don't think I understood either of those things at the time, but I think that's part of why I felt so uncomfortable with it. It's something that I, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, hmm, maybe I need to explore this in some kind of essay or something, because it is kind of an odd thing to have in a children's movie. 
so yeah, that was the thing that made me really uncomfortable. It was really scary for me. I have gotten over it now and I love that movie. Although to be honest, that scene still makes me uncomfortable and I'm not exactly sure why, but you know, maybe look out for a piece on it coming soon because now I'm intrigued and I need to find out the reason. So uh, Spinsters, thank you so much for letting me share this um, super embarrassing movie that I was really afraid of when I was a kid and I hope you're doing well and I will talk to you later. Bye. Should we move on to Return to Oz? Return to Oz. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's do this. Oh, the reason why we all are here today. Ugh, so good. So Return to Oz combines the plots of Ozma of Oz and the Magical Land of Oz. And Walter Murch, who is a sound designer and editor, this was a sole directorial effort. And this obviously is a very different movie than the 1939 musical. So yeah, Murch's plan was to adapt those two movies and put them together. But understanding that 1939 vision was very different. He actually wanted to stick closely to Baum's work and the illustrations, that really weird, creepy artwork that Willem Denslow did, right? So it's a very, very different film. And the characters, like you said in the beginning, Jess, are more faithful adaptations from the illustrations in the book. They look very much like the books. So thinking, you know, this might have put off fans, like this was definitely not a rousing success when it came out because it is a very different film and has very different characters. We have some of the classics, but they are support, very supporting non-roles, like our scarecrows there, the lions there, but we really see them at the end of the film. We have this emergence of new characters. We have TikTok, we have the Gump, we have Jack Pumpkin, Belina, our talking chicken. You know, we have all these other characters that you would see in the book. So yeah, it's a very different film. So for me, not being fully, I, I never read the books, so I didn't know that it was such a faithful adaptation. I just really liked like these weird and wacky macabre <laughs> characters. <laughs> Yeah, because, well, I remember seeing um, these creepy characters in the original books. Like, I'll never forget the Hammerhead people. They they always will creep me out. Um, yeah, but that was I heard about true. them. <laughs> yeah, but those were a true element, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why I enjoyed watching Return to Oz now, because I'm like, oh, this is a faithful adaptation of the things that gave me nightmares. Cool. And yep. <laughs> what's also really interesting, what I really like about what uh, Merch does with this adaptation is that later on, a lot of um, L. Frank Baum's books started having more of critique. Like, you can't not write children's literature and not over time start adding elements of critique of, of like social classes and supporting women's yeah. suffrages, you know, and disdain for windbag politicians and having a protagonist who's supposed to represent the every common man, which is Dorothy, yeah. right? And so I yeah. think it's really, in- I really enjoy the fact that Merch goes in and says, okay, so yeah, Frank Baum has these really creepy characters and they really are scary for children, but there's also these really other interesting elements that are also terrifying for children as well as adults and I'm going to bring them into the story as well so that they, it can become an interesting movie and make some of the ideas that make sense happen as they're just being displayed on the screen. And thinking back, so folks, if you don't, if you haven't seen this movie, obviously we always, it's always spoilers when we talk about movies, but <laughs> Return to Oz is actually set six months after the original visit to Oz and that great tornado that sent uh, Dorothy to Oz for the first time. And Dorothy is labeled mentally unwell. And we see this, but she's constantly talking about the land of Oz and this and that and the scarecrow and the lion. And everyone thinks she is 
for lack of a better word, insane. Like she is un- mentally unwell. And during this time, during this time, they're having to rebuild their house. They're financially strapped. They need to take out a second mortgage on their house. They need to rebuild. Winter is coming. They need food. It's a very dark time. And they have their niece that they're taking care of going on and on and on about this magical place. And what I love, and you see it in the, in the 1939 movie, is the people that are in Dorothy's real world end up being characters in Oz. The actors play double roles, right? Um, they're, I, and sometimes I feel like they're metaphors, right? So we have these different characters. We have our nurse in Return to Oz being uh, Princess Mombi, this terrifying woman that chops off the head of Oz uh, citizens to replace her own. So she has a whole selection of heads. Creepy. And in like the Gnome King is supposed to be like the doctor who like is performing electric therapy on her. Yep. Yeah. And in this rewatch, so the Wheelers, okay, the Wheelers are like infamously terrifying. Yeah. And (laughs) creepy and strange. And side note, that was like very specific particular training that those people had to do. And it was really hard on them. If you can imagine rolling around on all four legs with those, with the wheels. But they are the male hospital attendants. Yes. There's a couple of them. Like, I think there's like two to three male attendants and they are the wheelers. And so they also make make an appearance in Oz. And this, we read one of these articles and it was really great because I didn't even think about this, but I shut my eyes while watching (laughs) the scene. But the hospital attendants, the wheelers in the quote real world, the screeching wheels of the hospital beds throughout the, because Dorothy ends up going to this asylum of sorts to get shock therapy for because she is, quote, unwell. But the screeching that the wheels make throughout that hospital are the same screeching sounds that you can hear on the wheelers as they're chasing Dorothy. The sound design in this film is excellent. Walter Murch was a sound decider as well as an right. ace editor, yes, right? Absolutely. So yep. he, I yep. really, and that's one of the things I also really enjoyed about this movie is knowing his history and what on the films that he had worked on as a sound designer, I'm like, I'm pretty sure like Apocalypse now the godfather part two like he was well known in his work that he actually had a lot of support from lucas coppola and spielberg when disney wanted to take this film away from him and they came in and helped save the film for him but yeah him as a sound designer all the sounds in oz relate correlate to something Oz in her real life right and you just have to keep listening and i really like that 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 was pointed out and so i remember when i was watching it i was like i'm gonna listen for that i'm like oh yeah yeah, yeah. that would terrify me as well you know especially if i was in a hospital waiting for someone to come get me and just hear the gurney coming uh, yeah no yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah this movie is just like wonderfully and deliciously macabre Right. And there's and I notice on this rewatch the Tin Man story, they cut off his limbs and, and each time they cut off a limb, it turned him into tin with a magical axe like that just gets like mentioned briefly. And I was like, excuse me, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That's what happened. It's like a thing. This passing. is a children's story. <laughs> oh, my Ooh, goodness. Magic turned into tin. I'm like, this is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many very elements of this film that were horrifying. Oh, goodness. Like, to me, when Jack kept calling Dorothy mother, I was like, stop doing that. She's a child. I also didn't like that. <laughs> yep. I was like, no. My own trauma was coming up. I was like, oh, God, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, boy. Uh, this movie must have done wonders for you. <laughs> like I said, in all my notes, I'm like, this is terrifying. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> yep. 
Absolutely. So I want to talk about that really great video essay from In Praise of Shadows called Return to Oz is an Absolute Nightmare. So again, absolutely wonderful. If you haven't revisited this movie, besides revisiting it, take a look at this video essay on YouTube. It's so fantastic. So coming back to the 1939 adaptation, you know, it doesn't really, it's so Hollywood eyes, let's say in quotations, like there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of trauma in these original stories and there's horror in the original stories. So that's why it's really different. And I found this really interesting that he talked about. So pre-1939 adaptations are cold, grim, dark, and macabre like the books like there's a couple of silent films that they did there's one I know for sure is on YouTube that are weird and very tonally different so any Oz or Wizard of Oz movie post 1939 are very bright high fantasy dreamlike it was definitely like very Hollywood the Hollywood vibes oh for sure yeah it will definitely <laughs> there's whole musical scenes there's all elements like you yeah. can tell like yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. giant ensembles perf- <laughs> exactly it's an ensemble it's a giant performance and it's meant to make you feel really good inside because like, you're singing along with everyone even when yeah, they're we're off to see the wizard the wonderful Wizard of Oz dee 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 yeah but there are still these dark undertones. Like, I remember finishing uh, Wizard of Oz this month and thinking, after I watched Return to Oz, I was thinking, Glinda literally manipulated Dorothy to go and kill the witch and get rid of Oz so that, like, there's some dark elements still going on there. But yep. Yep. it is definitely not as dark as Return to Oz when, like you said, right from the get-go, we are not we are not only dealing with poverty, we're dealing with repressed trauma and the yep. treatment of mental health and how people are and then how systems are corrupt. Absolutely. That's the first 15, 20 minutes of this movie. <laughs> but like, it's interesting because it's, um, it's, and you see this in the 1939 film too, but like before she goes to Oz in 1939, it's like, well, it's the sepia tones for 1939. So it's all like drab, sorry, grim, drab, dark, plain, very beige. And then she goes to the wonderful land of Oz and it's Technicolor. It's brilliantly colorful. There's song and there's dance and there's creepy um, munchkins. Um, it's more creepy in like their outfits and stuff like that and how their makeup's done. It's, it's it's like a whole thing, right? And then what's really different and probably again why people maybe in the 80s didn't like 1985 were like, what is this Ozland? Because everything that's comfortable and familiar and full of nostalgia and goodness and wholesomeness from 1939 is gone in return to Oz. Like such a great point because I remember watching when there she's like mentioned like something about like the sands of slumber or something like that. Like if you step in these sands, I'm like, wait a second, that's yep. not a thing in Oz. And then like when they got to the Emerald City and it was just nothing but like trashed and graffiti everywhere. And I was yep. just like, oh, this is really dark and sad. <laughs> it is. Like there's a lot of muted colors. The friends are gone. Community's gone. The yellow brick road is in shambles. There's graffiti. The Emerald City is in shambles. There's no more singing and dancing and laughter. They're under hostile rule from the Gnome King, right? There's no hope left. And it's just a very grim, dark movie, which is very much like the stories. There's a lot of horror and violence. So I read and, you know, glancing through some of the books and the artwork, um, and they delve into this in the video essay, but a lot of characters dealing with their own trauma and their own issues. And then we bring this into Return to Oz and it's it's just like a whole different experience altogether. Yeah, well, exactly. It's like you said, everyone, these characters all dealing with their own trauma. We're now in a world of madness. There's medical experiments. There's psychotic hallucinations. We're thinking, you know, Dorothy's dealing with a split personality at the end, you know, where she believes that she, um, with the princess at Ozma, the idea of electric, like, you know, electrocution, like it is different. It is 
definitely a sad world. And like you said, all these characters, these new characters, all have something really sad that's happened to them. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not like in the world Wizard of Oz where, you know, the Scarecrow is like, I wish I had a brain. The other Timmons like, wish I had a heart. And they're like, at the end, they're like, you had it a whole time. The other ones are Ooh. like, you know, like, I have to rely on someone to keep t- making keep making things work so I can actually do my job. Or I, my mother is dead. Oh, at least, you know, Jack, sorry. <laughs> I still can't get over Jack and his whole thing about calling her mother. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very creepy because she is 12 or something. It's 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 very, very strange. And he's also very weird and creepy and gangly and mm, empty headed. Oz now, in return to Oz, is kind of turned into this cruel tribal land. Political ideologies are clashing everywhere. We have the Scarecrow who ended up being king at the end of our classic story of, of Wizard of Oz versus the Gnome King. The Gnome King. This was what was mainly like super super interesting about this video essay and obviously this went beyond like just over my head growing up with this movie because I was a child and hadn't lived a life but the gnome king in this movie claims that the people of Oz stole all of his emeralds from him that belonged to him out of his minds that his gnomes mined for them and they were his that's where he lived so he took back all of the emeralds he claimed took from them so he punished the people of Oz by turning them all to stone He breeds absolute hopelessness and he's this like manipulative, greedy tyrant. And as a kid, this, like I said, went straight over my head, Mm, but he is a horrifying villain. He's a horrifying villain, but at the same time, too, that you kind of feel for him because he's like, you guys started. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you started digging into our territory, taking our yep. stuff, and then making yourselves better, and then shoving the gnomes into the ground. Like he's talking about imperialism and capitalism. You're like, oh yeah, boy, absolutely. these are some these are some big hefty topics. So this land of Oz that was once beautiful, comforting, and everything we want is now hostile and scary because there's hostile presences. In Oz, you know, that wants to take down the Emerald City. And they see Dorothy as, like, she's maybe the savior of Oz, but she's a threat at the same time, too. Absolutely. Because she can bring things back to, quote, normal. And there's so many different sides of it, too. And because there is that moment when Dorothy says to the Gnome King, she's like, but you have so much already. And he's like, so? These are mine. I'm going to take them back. I'm going to punish all of these people. I'm going to turn them to stone. Mobby's going to chop off everybody's head because that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Who's magically gets their heads back at the end. But yeah, he's a capitalist. He's terrifying. Yeah. In this essay there, he had stated that this is essentially like an imperialist revenge tale. Yeah. And this is what we bring in, right? This, the story of you know, class structure, monetary value, finances, politics, changing ideologies and what's right, what's wrong. You know, it's 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 very deep. It's actually a very heavy movie for a children's movie. I found something really interesting is that the Gnome King banished all chickens from Oz because eggs can kill him. Eggs are a symbol of life and fertility. Gnome King, why do eggs kill you? You tyrant. Well, like, right? I, like you said, though, like he turned everyone to stone. He made Oz a desolate wasteland. Nothing could grow there. Nothing is fertile anymore. So get rid of the eggs, get rid of the chickens. So you can't have essentially yeah. life again. Right. You know, because that's absolutely his, that's his kryptonite. 
At the end there you of the go. day, Good yeah. Point. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, he has the ruby silk slippers because he needs to have everything. All the power. He wants to take it all for himself and nobody else can have it because why not? Good if point. no one's really there to stop him, right? Like if uh, the scarecrow, yeah. who is really kind of not really supposed to be on the throne to begin with, as it belonged to Ozma, he can't yeah. really do too much. He's more of a, um, a figurehead at the time who was put onto yeah. the throne uh, prior to in the first film. So, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And like I said, when people go further into reading the Oz books and stuff like that, you see more yeah. of the influences on Frank Baum about what he felt and believed and stuff like that. And I will highlight that there are problematic views towards Native Americans yes. and people of color. Um, yeah, He definitely did have yeah. a very big founding father mentality, which you can see in some of the elements that are seen in Oz. So just wanted to point yeah. that out that it's like, well, Absolutely. this is like an American fairy tale and everyone loves it so much. There was some problematic elements yeah. when it came to the author. Absolutely. And who isn't problematic these days, <laughs> folks, especially you white dudes? Just saying. Hi there. My name is Arielle Powershab. I'm a horror enthusiast and a regular contributor to Ghouls Magazine. My favorite childhood movie that also scared me is The Labyrinth with David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. I was particularly afraid of the puppets in the beginning, when they are hiding in baby Toby's room, urging Sarah to make her wish. I thought their faces and their teeth were scary, as well as their cackling. I was afraid of the way they disappeared into the dark and reappeared when the lightning struck. Sarah turns around to try to catch them, and they hide, which put the idea in my head that there could be things hiding in my bedroom. This is near the very beginning of the film, so it sets the tone for other scary parts that come later, such as the fire gang. The fire gang scared me because they were presented as fun and fancy free, but they are objectively horrifying, taking off their heads and kicking them around. They invite Sarah to stay and play with them, and even try to remove her head. I don't get the sense that Sarah was ever really in danger, but thinking of my little kid self in that situation made me feel afraid. The puppets in the beginning and the fire gang removing their heads represented one kind of fear, a fear of monsters that might hide and try to hurt you. But the labyrinth introduced me to another kind of fear, which was new to me as a little kid, which is the fear of losing your purpose. Sarah gets distracted later in the film and forgets she is supposed to be looking for her brother. There's an old woman puppet that distracts her with toys and makeup and encourages her to relax and play. Sarah thankfully snaps out of it, but she could have forgotten to save her brother. This was deeply unsettling to me as a child, and still is as an adult. The labyrinth also made me a little afraid of my words. Sarah makes a wish with tons of unintended consequences. As a child, I was anxious that I might have a fleeting negative thought and somehow put that negativity into the world. Now that I understand my anxiety better as an adult, I don't fully blame that fear on the labyrinths, but it didn't help. An additional fun fact. This movie is at least partly inspired by a children's picture book called Outside Over There by Maurice Sendak. And I highly recommend you find it and read it. The closing credits of the film state Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. I loved this book as a child as well, and I didn't really notice the similarity of their plots until I was an adult. The Labyrinth is the first movie that I can remember being scared by but wanting to go back to over and over, which is a feeling I still chase as a horror fan. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. It's amazing.
Hello, spinsters of horror. This is Richard of Hello, This is the Doomed Show. I uh, heard your call, your your cry in the night of what about those children's films that scared me as a kid. And uh, I could only think of one. And that film, The Peanut Butter Solution, 1985, directed by Michael Rubbo. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. So this kid, Michael, in the movie... Uh, he's uh, being dared by his best bud to go peek in a burned out house. And um, he sees something in the house that is so terrifying, he loses all of his hair. But then the ghost of a homeless woman who died in that fire uh, takes pity on him and uh, shares her magical recipe for hair growth. And of course, he royally screws up the recipe like a kid would. And the magical hair growth ends up working way too well, like crazy well. A villain in his town, of Canadia town, notices his crazy hair growth and decides to turn a profit off of this uh, this hair. So he has to solve his frickin' uh, hair issue, as well as escape the clutches of this evil baddie. Um, I was the perfect age for the peanut butter solution when it came out. I doubt I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it on TV, but like the whole premise of the film just terrified me. The whole thing of seeing something so scary that uh, you don't remember it and it makes your freaking hair fall out. Then the body horror elements kick in. This impossible hair growth freaked me out so bad. Uh, the scene where the kid is uh, sitting in class and his friend is secretly snipping the hair for him to help him out. Biggest memory was getting to the end of the film and finally seeing what had uh, inspired this kid's scaredy baldness and was very disappointed. That was a big memory of mine, of just being like, uh, So I went ahead and rewatched the film now. I faced my fears, and uh, I noticed that this movie is totally bonkers. It's... Uh, it's very, very, very Canadian as all heck. It was made with a lot of imagination. It has weird tangents that I won't even go into now. It's so bizarre. Uh, the sense of humor is completely crazy. The last thing I'll leave you with when it comes to being traumatized by a film, uh, this traumatized me more as an adult than as a child. There's a whole sequence where Michael's best friend puts the peanut butter solution on his downstairs area because he wants to grow some hair. And of course, because the mixture is bad, he gets uncontrollable hair growing down in the downstairs zone. It's utterly horrifying, that whole sequence. I can't... It's like the most insane subplot ever. <laughs> but that's it for me. Hopefully I didn't ramble on too long for y'all. Keep on keeping on, and I hope to talk to y'all later. So when is it a good time to introduce children to horror? We ask ourselves these questions over and over and over again. And one of the things I think about is, should we let them watch horror? But then I think about when I was a kid, we watched films that did have terrifying elements to it. It wasn't labeled horror. It was a fantasy. It was a fairy tale. It was a mm -hmm. myth. All these, but they all have different horrific elements to them that scared us. Like I said, watching yeah. Return to Oz, there were so many things in that movie that would have scared me as a child and even but scared me as an adult one of the things was moby sleeping headless i remember watching <laughs> that scene as an adult obviously and being like sitting there being like oh i really hope she's not headless i really hope oh she is headless while she is sleeping that is nightmare fuel <laughs> 
Yeah, there's, yeah, just let me know. One spoiler about her feelings of the movie is that she doesn't like headless people. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) So after watching Return to Oz and seeing all the things that terrified me as an adult in that film and knowing what it terrified me as I was younger, because I remember thinking about scenes, a lot of scenes growing up as as a child, thinking about, I remember that scared me. I remember in this movie this scared me. And so then I started thinking, when is it a good time to let our kids, let kids watch horror, our nieces and nephews and our children, because often we see a lot of horrific elements in fairy tales. Return to Oz to be one is one great example of that. So we read this really good article that talked about some of the ideas about what you can do when it comes to letting your children see horror movies. And one of the big things that they mentioned was that it allows children to start handling their fear in a healthy way. And that even corresponds to an article that came out, I think it was August of this year about adults. Um, it's like, it was talking about, we can reference this in the in the library, but it was talking about how horror fans are dealing better with the pandemic overall than other people. And absolutely. And this can start, a lot of us started at young ages, right? We can, we watch horror movies from a safe setting, either the theater or the comfort of our own bedroom or couch, right? And that's the same for kids. And the, and the uh, PhD in this, from a developmental standpoint, it allows children to learn to cope with fear and build resilience. It's a healthy fear. It's like at Halloween where they get dressed up as spooky goblins and witches and different things. And it's just, it's fun. It's spooky, but it's healthy. And it just helps them build the idea of healthy fear because they know it's not real. The costume isn't real. That person is in a costume and they can understand that. I feel like children can do that early when they watch like these like different fantasy uh, TV series and stuff and they see like Mm -hmm. a small scary element in it and they're like oh well I know that's not real because all this is fantasy you know and they so they can kind of bring that into uh, the horror movie genre themselves and be like okay well I can I can distance myself knowing that this is not real absolutely absolutely and they can do all this in obviously a pretty controlled safe environment but also um, in this article they're talking about how it actually enables us as people and as kids in a developmental age to practice empathy and perspective taking. So there were three main things that this author had brought up with regards to if you want to introduce horror movies to your kids. So one of the things is consider what your kid would actually want to watch. It will vary. Some kids, and I talked to a friend of mine who has two kids. One, I think she's uh, she's about eight and the other one's about 12 or 13. And one can separate themselves and be like, this is just a movie. I can watch whatever. But one has a problem with like the gore and violence and blood and stuff like that. They just have a hard time with it. So what do they actually want to watch, right? And they were seeing in this that around age four, kids are figuring out how to manage fears that naturally develop in childhood and sometimes layering scary movies on top of that could be overwhelming. So figure out what they want to watch. Are they even interested? Yeah, you don't want to create an anxiety towards horror movies at a really early age in life. And I feel like that may have happened to me at an early age where like I may have saw something (laughs) I should not have seen as a child. Actually, no, I know what I saw as a child that scared me. And it was a Star Trek episode of someone getting killed. And it 
created oh boy. yeah it, it created anxiety and fear in me so I, I stayed away from things like the horror genre but I I would still engage in like the creepy weird stuff so it was like always on the on the edge of horror yeah. so yeah you don't want to create that anxiety absolutely it, you know maybe showing them at the age of four something like you know really scary is not a great idea for you know the ch- for children but no. also uh, tailoring the things they want to see based on their personality and their interests they will tell you what they yeah, like absolutely. and what they don't like a movie about cats or bees or some specific, like, I'm looking at you, arachnophobia. (laughs) If they have a specific fear of spiders, that might be too much for them. Or they might delight in it, but you don't know, right? Kind of kind of depends, right? If they're a child that is prone to more anxious or like anxious situations or anxiety, like you were, Jess, like maybe not watch some horror movies, straight up horror. I was not prone to those things. And I watched a lot of things I probably shouldn't have at a too young age. My parents are very (laughs) hands off in their parenting. So I kind of did whatever I wanted, generally speaking. So that's definitely one thing because like they're either they're going to be able to suspend that disbelief or they're not going to. They may be like you, Jess, where they have a very active imagination and might be too much for them. So it all comes down to, yes, what is your kid willing and interested in actually watching and their personality? Absolutely. Yeah. Another uh, item that they suggested in this was watching films with their children together. Ones that are not too scary yeah. or ones that are maybe a little scary. Make it a positive experience. And also, and I yeah. I can speak from experience having done this with my niece, if they feel scared <laughs> by a scene, allow them to leave or shut off the movie. Don't force yeah. them like, oh, just close your eyes or cover your ears, like earmuffs and cover. That, yeah. It's only going to be a minute. Yeah, right? And as a child being told to do that, that doesn't make it better. It makes things worse because as a child with an overactive imagination, I'm imagining the worst possible scenario. Whereas, you know, if the child wants to leave, okay, cool, go on, you go do your thing or just shut the movie off. And that creates a positive experience for them because like you said, it brings them back to that controlled environment. They feel like they're not in a dangerous situation. So they go, oh, I can shut this off and go deal with their emotions. And a little note was, how can you tell if a movie is too scary for your kid or they're watching too many horror movies or like stuff's going on and maybe we need to scale back on this. If there's an increase in nightmares, night terrors, the trouble falling asleep or the afraid fear of strangers or the dark or being left alone. Like there's some stuff, if, especially if they didn't have it before watching the movie, we might want to scale it back. But it all, it's all about communication, right? And, and seeing where your kids are at and just touching base with them and finding out like, was that too much? How did that go? Was that okay? And finding things that they liked it, you know, in the realm of that movie that that they can enjoy because movies are fun. Movies are escapism. They're entertainment. And I grew up watching movies with my family and that was a bonding experience. I just had Christmas with my family and my dad and I are always watching movies together. Like I show him movies, he shows me movies. It's just something that we bond over. So it can be really great, but you got to do it right, I guess. You yeah. Could say. And one of the things also I want to bring up that I really took away from this article and made me feel a little less bad about showing my 10 year old niece alien this summer. <laughs> was that they can these films can also show how fictional characters deal with a frightening situation and learn how yeah learn how learn to develop their own attitude of survivorship and i'm only saying this because yeah yes i did show my 10 year old niece alien this past summer she did Mm -hmm. agree to it and we all watched it together with her parents in attendance we tried to make (laughs) it as most positive experience and there are some scenes that she that were terrifying to me that she was like "Mm, that's not real and she wasn't scared 
But it got to a point where it did get too scary for her, and she had to leave. The alien was just too much. And she had to leave. And we were like, do you want us to stop the movie? She's like, no, 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 just keep going. And she went, cuddled with her other sister for a bit. Then she came back and just came back in the scene where she saw Ripley get defeat the alien, get her out. She was like, yes. And I was like, yeah. yay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you can try and yeah. the evil alien. Don't worry. You will not be afraid of this movie the rest of your life. I hope I did not scar my niece. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, she was able to come back in a moment and see that, see that, that surviving attitude yeah. and not like leave the film and always be afraid that the alien was going to get her later in life. Yeah. No, good point. Good point. Yeah. It's a great point to come back to the movie and enjoy. And you're like, shit. Yeah. Ripley. This this is awesome. So the horror, eventually I'm sure she'll rewatch it. I hope that all of the horror is worth it because you get to the end and it is She can best, reconcile with right? her fear. <laughs> Absolutely. That was more eloquently stated. So some of the movies that this article recommended or brought up for kids to as like entryway or gateway movies, intro movies, The Nightmare Before Christmas. A lot of these will be very familiar <laughs> to all of us. The Nightmare Before Christmas, Labyrinth, The Goonies, Goosebumps, Coraline, Gremlins, Beetlejuice, the Harry Potter series, and The Sixth Sense. Wow, a lot of movies you and I grew up with as children. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot. The newer ones, like The Sixth Sense and Coraline. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, but as, yeah, growing up, it's, and it's interesting that there are some, like, 80s and 90s and stuff that we still show our, I'm saying we, but, like, people still show their kids today because that's what they grew up mm. with and they, they hold up, right? So, do we think that Return to Oz is a great introduction to horror movies? It is a, is it a part of gateway horror? What do you think, Jess? Uh, I definitely think it is. It reminds me of the films like The Witches, Last Unicorn, like you said, Legend, Dark Crystal. Like It has those horror elements to it. There's horror tropes throughout it. There's an insane old psycho. That's a horror trope right there. You know, but the film, yep. it has a lot of overtones and themes that are horrific, but it just combines, there are, you know, like this, um, it's just combining it with dark fantasy, which I love. I love dark fantasy. Yeah. So, I definitely absolutely. think that this is a gateway horror film for children. Yourself? Yes, absolutely. And it was really great. Like, didn't revisit some of my old classics because I've watched them a billion times since I was a kid. But I watched a couple of newer movies. Like, I rewatched Coraline. And I feel like that's like a new modern instant classic for yep. gateway to children, like children's horror and gateway to actual horror as a genre. It was great. Yes. There's fantasy. There's adventure. It's macabre. It's weird. There's horror elements horror adjacent maybe even throw it in that category whimsical there's some like cheeky comedy and there's a lot of darkness to it and what's really great about this movie and they brought this up in that video essay um is that explores the psychology of dorothy and in the 1980s there's this quote fear survey for children and some of the things that were brought up and a lot of the things that they hit on in return to oz so that's why i also think it's a great gateway to horror movie some of the main things that it hits on and that are fears for children Fear and criticism, the unknown, minor injury and small animals, danger, death and medical fears. So as a kid, these are things that they're afraid of. There's like a massive list of things that children are afraid of, but it hits on some of the biggest portions. Other things that children are in this survey from the 80s. So when it came out, I'm sure this movie horrified many (laughs) children. Going to the hospital, death or dead people, punishment by adults, getting lost, high places, being teased, failing a test. 
strange looking people, deep water, water falling, being alone and more. Failing a test I want to bring up because it causes such anxiety and stress in me when Dorothy has to go through that like antique room and find her friends. And if you don't choose, you have three choices. And if you don't choose them in those three choices, you get turned into an an ornament. That's horrifying. Mm -hmm. You're a child. You have to find your friends who you love and adore, who provide you safety and comfort. But she was so good and she was so quick to to find the the theme that they were all green ornaments because they were people of Oz, you know? And, but that was, that was scary, right? No, that is scary. And I love that you bring up those five core tenets of fear when it it comes to children's movies. Because like, I can go and look back at all the children's movies that I saw and be like, oh, that hits on this fear and that fear and that fear. So much with small animals like at one point I was like oh is Toto gonna come with her is Toto gonna come with her and then he doesn't I was like okay good but why are you just leaving Toto there? <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> why is Toto being left why behind? Because like you said, in the original Wizard of Oz, Toto is the real MVP of that movie. Um, he is. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you're right. Like, all those elements are played in the Return to Oz, and you get that. So I think it's definitely a great way, because also, Dorothy is a child, and that raises the stakes tremendously, right? Like, a child Absolutely. in a foreign land having to battle evil monarch and go up against characters that are scary. I just recently watched Home Alone. I haven't watched that since I was a child. And as an adult watching this, I'm like, that poor kid. <laughs> like, sitting there like, well, of course Absolutely. he should be terrified. He's been left alone. There's people, there's strangers trying to break into his house. All these things, I'm like, so I, I also kind of feel that Home Alone is gateway horror. But anyway, <laughs> I will definitely agree that Oz is definitely a great beginning film for budding horror fans because not only do you get the suspense and the scares, it's also very whimsical. There is whimsy to it. There is fantasy and that makes it easier to digest as a child. So we reached out onto social media to find out because we are not parents of human children. So, I mean, our perspective is going to be, yes, we agree and can admit somewhat limited in our scope of understanding this whole idea of introducing children to horror, right? But some of the movies that came up multiple times for movies that people have shown their kids and you'll see these too, you know, if you're browsing the internet and like looking for movies that might be appropriate for your kids. Gremlins, again, Beetlejuice, Ghostbusters, The Gate, Adam's Family, newer ones, Monster House and Paranorman, Arachnophobia, Jaws, Critters, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, I know uh, there's a friend of mine, he has a young daughter, I think she's about six now, but he wanted some horror movie recommendations for her, but she was also a kid that was watching The Walking Dead. Mm. Maybe she shouldn't have been, but like, that's pretty intense. I was like, all right, well, let's stick with some. He wanted stuff that didn't have any sex in it. I was like, okay. So I mentioned like stuff that's rated PG so he could easily look up PG movies, but also there's a bunch of stuff from Blumhouse too that it's not going to be high in the sex and the violence. There's going to be some spooky vibes without swearing and stuff like that, like The Conjuring and like Annabelle and and stuff like that. So I recommended those movies to to him. Yeah, and we did the same thing too for my uh, sister-in-law because as I'm an aunt and I my sister-in-law also yeah. likes horror movies but cannot watch them because her, her children are too young. She was looking for films. I'm like, what is good gateway horror? No, we're not going to watch Alien again because we just almost terrified my 10-year-old niece. So <laughs> let's start them all small. And like, yeah, you were listing out all yeah. these great films that are, you know, based upon their age group. Yeah. This is yeah. this is going to be um, more appropriate for them. But I also really like in a lot of the comments that were brought out is individuality. Check in with your child. Absolutely. Like, yeah. they're not going to say no, but they're going to like, you know, allow their child to choose 
choose what they want to watch or not watch. Like, you know, allow children to be children, but allow them to be individuals and allow them to choose what they want to see. Don't force anything onto them. Like, if they don't want to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, don't make them watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, right? Yeah, there's a couple that stood out to me. Uh, David Smith had said, every kid is different, but my son showed interest in horror stuff really early, like three years old. Okay. Started him off with Halloween Simpsons episodes. Great yeah. idea. Then moved to Gremlins, Beetlejuice, Ghostbusters. Hello, the 80s. <laughs> um, he loves The Gate. That's good gateway horror. Absolutely. And I haven't seen The Gate in so long, but agree. Like those are just, again, and it's also interesting that there's so many, because a lot of these people that commented are relatively our age and they have kids. They're going to show movies from when we yeah. grew up, 80s and 90s, particularly the 80s, right? And there's going to be a lot of crossover, a lot of similarities of these introduction to to horror movies that we grew up with that like informed us and our interests and who we are. Yeah, today. and I really like how uh, Gracie uh, from Good Morning Nancy had made a comment how she's going to start her children out young, like not too young when they're ready, but starting them off gradually and starting off with old black and white classics and then moving into the 80s, mm. which I think is a great way to yep. start, you know, um, a young horror fan if they become one, but also just good yep. start in learning cinema history as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with that because that they often get overlooked, right? Origins of horror. Maybe not, you know, they won't understand the importance of these movies when they're six years old, but when they get older, they will. And I think that they would appreciate knowing all of these old black and white classics as, you know, as they get older and if they become horror fans, that that'll be really great for them. Zach Long said, I'm the stepfather role. So they were already watching horror movies before I came into the picture. But at the age of 13, we've been watching things like Trick or Treat, Phantasm and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So a little bit older, already came in and they were already a bit of a horror fan so we can show them things that are a little bit more mature, let's say. Jedi definitely made a comment about how it definitely depends on the individual child. Some kids just respond to horror better than others regardless of how well you do it as a parent. You try them out with child-friendly horror and ask them how they feel about certain aspects of it and to see how far they like to go. So she's been watching horror with adults all her life since she was about five and was always excited about it but even when she was afraid her folks had always explained to her how the special effects were done and that it was fake and that you know movies weren't off limit but if there's something awkward you know she had to trust within her comfort of people around her to know that it was okay and then when she started that her own son she started them off around maybe age five or six with some lighter horror took them to the fan expo which i think is a great idea because then you can see the actors oh, yeah. and the makeup and behind the scenes so that you can work on that whole disassociation and not having that active imagination yeah. and then when he got around eight she was saying that the cat exiting the mouse scene from tales from the dark side was just too much and he stopped liking horror for a while after that he ended up playing horror games a bit later on and now likes movies again as their early 20s checking out all the classic and must watches but <laughs> that scene almost ruined it for him yeah <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> so really, she was Absolutely. saying her takeaway is just keeping the conversations with them and let them set the speed. And I really like that. Love that. Yep. Absolutely. It's very responsible communication. I think the last thing I'll say about that is that, again, looking at the commonalities between these movies, a lot of them are either musicals or have musical elements to them, which I think is nice because the music, even though they might be singing about spooky things like in Nightmare Before Christmas, the music makes it feel yes. lighter. So it feels happier in quotations. Like it just feels a little bit different. So anything horror musical wise probably works well. Tim Burton yep. stuff, um, anything that has any kind of musical element to it. Beetlejuice comes up a lot and that could be 
have definitely some spooky aspects for a kid, but we have a couple of musical interludes. So it's going to soften the blow, I guess, a little bit. But I noticed that too, just as a pointer, um, that there was some musical elements. That and the comedic elements too. I find if there's a comedic elements that yep. the child is able to laugh while also being scared, that yep. works in your favor as yep. well. Horror comedies. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Good for intro horror to for adults and good for yes. kids. There we go. <laughs> You're right. Right? Very like, Ernest point. Scared Stupid. That point. movie scared me, but there are the comedic oh elements to it that I still kept going back to watching it, even though there's certain things I was just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yeah, that's that's good point. Good point. Hi, Jess. Hi, Kelly. And hi, everybody listening to The Horror Spinsters. My name is Dom, and I am the host of Couch Tomatoes, a German podcast about exercising about nutrition and about loving yourself appreciating yourself we try to move away from all the superficiality of social networks we try to help people approach the subject more healthily and everybody be more in sync with themselves so if you are able to understand german i suggest you check us out couch tomatoes is the name and you know what gets your heart racing aside from exercise? Scary fucking movies. Woohoo! But today I'm not going to talk to you about a genuine horror movie, even though that was what I was acquainted with at a very early age, probably way too early exactly. Um, but today it's about actually a children's movie that scared me as a kid. Um, just to give you a little context, between the age of 10 to maybe 13 or 14, I was terrified, really fucking terrified of the thought of nuclear threat. I don't know how exactly that came about, but I remember there was a German youth book author, a female book writer called Gudrun Pausewang. She unfortunately died a few years back, and she was very um, extreme when it came to the use of nuclear power. She was of the opinion that we should abandon all nuclear plants immediately, that nuclear power might, in the end, really wipe us all out and, and delete mankind from history books. And she wrote youth books that were quite in sync with that. One was called The Cloud, Die Wolke, in German. And the book, when you open it up, it had a map on the first page. And the book was actually about a nuclear power plant that was an actually real, a real thing. And it was only 80 kilometers from where I lived at the time. And the map depicted my hometown and also pretty much said, okay, if you live here, if that's the, the radius where you live from where the incident happened, because that's what the book was all about, an incident happening at said power plant, if you live here, then you don't have to do anything. Basically, don't run, don't hide, don't even seek shelter. You have been already fully exposed to the maximum amount of radiation. Once you've learned about that incident, there's no other way. Just lay down and die in a very painful, agonizing and really kind of disturbing way. So that pretty much heightened my fear back in the day. And then at one point, one, one day, I was opening up the TV guide and I saw a movie called When the Wind Blows. When the Wind Blows is a 1986 UK animated movie. It was released, I think, worldwide back in the day. It was directed by Jimmy T. Murakami who also contributed to one of my favorite movies ever, 1981 animated classic masterpiece, Heavy Metal. You might probably know it. 
and he directed this movie. And the movie's about an old couple, about an old UK couple called Hilda and Jim. They live in the countryside somewhere, and they hear on the radio that the imposing threat of nuclear destruction from, I think, the Russians is becoming more and more real. And of course, they are veterans of two world wars. That's how they talk about it. That's how they approach everything. We've been through that. We know what's coming. We're just going to seek shelter. Jim goes, rides the bus to town, and he buys a leaflet, leaflet that says, you can build yourselves a DIY shelter, which is basically just a few doors unhinged, um, lean towards the wall at an angle, and... You know, take a few cans of food, take a few drinks of water, maybe a little bit, something to read to pass the time, and then await the blast in that shelter. Just stay in there a couple more days and you shall be fine. And they're like, okay, if the government tells us to do that, they are probably going to know what they're talking about because we don't really have any reason to not trust in our government. So when they say to do, that's the way to do it, then we're going to do it that way. And that's exactly what they do, and then the blast hits, they crawl into a little shelter, and I'm not going to spoil anything more, because if you want to watch the movie, then basically the whole second half of the movie will drag you down into an absolute abyss. So, a major, major content note for the movie. Um, it's, it's really, really tough to watch, actually, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, because that would be spoiling the whole movie, so look it up. Because that one really terrified me when I was like 13 or 14. I watched it. I remember watching it because it was specifically stated as a kid's movie. And I was unable to sleep for many, many, many nights after. And um, today I'm a little more... I'm a little... uh, I feel a little more... um, I'm okay with watching it right now. But it still kind of freaks me out a little bit. So, When the Wind Blows, a great uh, main title song by David Bowie. I think Iron Maiden have have had a song or one or two songs about it too. So, if you want to look it up, there are several DVD releases, Blu-ray releases, um, but really do it uh, with a lot of caution. That's about it. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Chess. Back to you and have fun with the rest of the episode. Bye-bye. And now we've arrived at Spencer's Final Thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious, hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Horror is an everyday part of my life. It's there when I wake up in the morning with my Friday the 13th mug. It's there on my commute to work as I listen to the Horror Queers podcast. And it's there to settle me into my evening after a super hectic day at work when I throw on 2B TV, of course, or I turn to my physical collection and put on a new favorite like Psycho Goreman. Horror most definitely has kept me company during these two epic years of a pandemic. I think horror is important for escapism, but also for catharsis and comfort. 
Return to Oz is an excellent, excellent gateway movie for youngsters intrigued by the darker side of life. And I think horror can make them stronger and more resilient for what's to come as adults. This month, I have gained a newfound respect and love for this creepy movie from my childhood, as I think one of the many messages, one that really stood out to me the most this time around, is that you are never too young or small to be brave and help people. Satan knows we need all the help we can get. So in a world full of gnome kings... Be a Dorothy. Oh, I love that. This was a fun month for me coming off of a pretty sad month. So I enjoyed revisiting not only the Land of Oz, but also the films and the stories that influenced my own interest in the dark, the dark and the macabre and just the horror genre in general. It was fun looking back at the novels and movies that were supposed to be child friendly because they were not labeled horror, but have terrifying elements to them that would scare me. I treasure these memories despite the fact that they caused me to be a late bloomer in my horror fandom. I always knew it was there. I just think I saw a few things that were a little too scary for me at that time. It was also really fun reading the comments and talking to people about the films and books that scared them as children, but also figuring out when was the best idea to introduce their own children to the dark side of literature and film and those things that scare us. You know, how to address our fears and how to confront them when we are faced with them. I think that it is great that, you know, as children that is a really great healthy coping mechanism and I think it's a great thing that we continue to support that when we have children who are showing an interest in things that are more of the weird, dark and macabre and as an aunt and also as a woman who has chosen to be child free I get to live these memories and these stories through my brother and my sister-in-law as they tell me as they introduce their children to these various stories that we read and saw as children and their reactions to them so I look forward to being the aunt that gets to recommend horror movies to them and go with them on that journey as they begin seeing this world that the horror that the horror genre has to offer them and how it does make you more of an empathetic person and makes you more realize the importance of what it is to face your fears and come on top and be able to look the world in the eye and say well fuck you too so that ends our episode on Return to Oz. We want to thank Dance of the Dead with our intro and outro music, Ropies, and Brandon for all of his hard work on our promotional materials. Also to all of you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. We are on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Spinsters of Horror. We have a Facebook group called the Spinsters of Horror Coven. Join us over there. We also have a Letterboxd account at Horror Spinsters, and you can also watch us on our YouTube channel, Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on iTunes. We have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and go to our shop page to donate. Next month, we are on vacation. Official vacation. Woo! <laughs> uh, we are taking our annual satanic sabbatical, so we will all see you all in February for Black History Month. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs> <laughs>